Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Just as office workers were returning to their cubicles, a new wave of COVID has arrived. Now, office towers across Canada have been vacant for almost two years. I'm Gabe Friedman, and this week on Down to Business, I spoke about the return to the office with Samantha Sinella, an architect by training in Toronto, who specializes in urban design in the workplace. She's the managing director of strategic consulting for the global real estate services firm Cushman and Wakefield. Sanella predicted companies will provide new amenities when workers return to offices. A lot could be different. As always, this interview is edited for clarity and brevity. Samantha, thanks so much for joining me on Down to Business today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you asking me my opinion. Of course. So it's January 2022, and office buildings have been vacant almost two years. And I wanted to ask you a hypothetical question. If every single employee in Canada said they absolutely never wanted to return to the office, who do you think would be hurt the worst by this economically? And what kind of economic fallout would we see? Well, one, I really like the hypothetical question. (laughs) (laughs) Get my imagination going. I do think in the long run, it would ultimately hurt the overall Canadian economy, its level of innovation, time to market, creativity, et cetera. Bringing people together promotes those things, promotes innovation, promotes new ways of thinking, creativity. And digital collaboration is fantastic, but it doesn't replace face-to-face. So as organizations change over time, This is when you start to see the effect. So, you know, we've hung on pretty well for the last 18 months. But as new people get hired, they're brought on to be part of that culture, um, part of that organizational knowledge. That starts to decrease if they're not brought together face-to-face. So I think that's one problem. Two, it will affect downtowns in a big way. So, you know, we've got all of our major real estate investments and assets sitting downtown. And if people aren't going back to them, well, what's going to happen to downtown? you know, we are seeing some of that already and trying to figure out how to uh, offset those issues. An interesting answer. One of the reasons why I brought that up was because at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a lot of excitement, maybe there still is in certain quarters, about whether we could convert offices into housing. Do you think we could still see some of that? Depending on building type, yes. Well, one, because residential and office and services are zoned separately, it's really difficult in a long-term process to rezone commercial spaces into residential. So number one, it's a long-term play no matter what. Number two, to take a high-rise and convert it into residential is extremely expensive. Different building codes apply. So that requires a lot of investment, and sometimes the dollars aren't there to make it work financially. There's very few examples, even from the past in Canada, that I can give you where they've taken a high-rise and converted it into a condo. So that's difficult to do. Now, if you have a bunch of low-rise buildings, it's much easier and less expensive as well uh, from an infrastructure perspective. So to make a long story short, it depends on the kind of building. Now, as we're seeing in Calgary, Calgary has come out with some municipal incentives or provincial incentives as well, I think, to convert some of their buildings. But 
this wasn't necessarily due to the pandemic. This was due to their high level of vacancy in their office product pre-pandemic because of their dependency on oil and gas. Now, architects can create all kinds of things. It just may not be feasible from an investment perspective. So is it possible? Yes. Is it a long-term play to convert it? Yes. You can't do it in a year. It's more like a five to six-year conversion. Right. You started off by saying real estate is a long-term play. Long-term can mean a lot of things, but like we're two years into this pandemic. At what point does the long view start to say, this is the best use of this space, which is, you know, sitting empty, a great cost to somebody. Mm-hmm. Well, I do think our downtowns in our major area, Vancouver, Montreal, Toronto, where they were in high demand anyway, I don't think they're a conversion play. I think offices will fill back up through tech growth. I mean, we're having explosive tech growth in the country. A lot of people migrating from B-class buildings over to A-class buildings, you know, by growing their company. So I think, yes, they may sit in transition for a while, but I think they will fill back up. As well, our global surveys, including Canada, show us that people really want a hybrid work environment, which means they will be returning to the office two to three days a week. So we'll still have a need for office space. So I don't think that we're ripe for conversion there yet. Where I do think we might want to look at some areas to convert are either aging buildings, which you know don't make sense now from even an office perspective if we have some aging products, and then suburban B and C class buildings where they were sitting empty anyway. So for assets like that, it makes sense to look at them differently to see what we can do with them. And it's not just residential. I know I do believe that high-tech urban farming is something we still have to look at to get us to produce our own food sources here to feed our cities. No, I spoke to another guest who's also a proponent of this, but the way that it was explained is that it's also a complicated zoning issue to put farms into office space. You know, a, a lot of these roadblocks, let's call them, do lie within the municipalities and zoning. And the way I look at it, zoning is merely one rule that needs to be broken. To me, there's no reason you can't mix residential with office in the same tower. And you do have that in some towers now, like we are seeing a little bit of mix. But some of those strict zoning rules, I think, need to be broken. As well, you know, some of the clean industrial areas, there's no reason you can't mix live, work, play in those areas, too. So I think it makes for a more vibrant city when you do that. I mean, I'm not saying take away all the rules, but some of them should be relaxed. I did move here from Houston, which has loosest <laughs> zoning regulations in all of North America, and you see a lot of crazy things there. But I do think in some ways it, it benefits the economy. I tend to think of real estate as being sort of a bizarre world where you have NIMBYs, people who are kind of against all development, and on the polar extreme of that, people who are in favor of any development and don't really see a lot of smart planning. Is there any sense that the pandemic has shifted people's attitudes? One can only hope. So something that I'm saying that I really think has a negative effect and will have a long-term negative effect is at the rate we're building warehouse and distribution on farmland. So we're gobbling up farmland. You know, we're stretching toward Caledon, Orangeville, Brantford, all those areas outside of Toronto. We're gobbling them up with warehousing for our Amazon packages, et cetera. And we're taking away farmland. That is going to have a negative effect long-term. A, uh, it's bad for the environment. So, you know, we're building on farmland. So, you know, already you've got stormwater issues and heat sinks and all kinds of things and industrial pollution and yada, 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 brawl. So we've got unprecedented sprawl in industrial land. Um, From a real estate perspective, it's fantastic. Everybody wants to invest in industrial. 
properties at all-time high, vacancies at all-time low. So if I had extra money, I'd go invest in industrial property. The problem is we're not looking at it from a big picture society perspective. What's that going to do 20, 30 years from now? We've just eaten up all our farmland and we haven't really solved the problem. So we should be looking at underground warehousing distribution and still having the farmland on top of it or multi-level warehousing and distribution. So instead of building five individual warehouses, you're building one and you're stacking it. So there's ways to solve it. We're not doing either one of those things. And those to me are common sense. You know, why, why wouldn't we do that? Why wouldn't we say, hey, yeah, farmer, you're going to get your money out of this, you know, because farmers want to cash in, but we're still going to have a farm on top of this warehouse. So we're just not smart about the way we do things. I call it connecting the dots. We don't do a lot of dot connecting here on Earth. <laughs> we need to start connecting the dots on Earth. <laughs> well, you have such an interesting background, like between Houston and now Toronto, Ontario, if I can ask. You know, what made you make that move? Kind of how planning occurs differently in those two communities? Well, it's even more different because I grew up on a farm in southern Arkansas out in the middle of nowhere and then eventually made my way to Houston in graduate school in architecture and then spent a decade there and then moved here. It is very different. I mean, in general, I can say that Houston, with its non existent or loose zoning restrictions, uh, has a lot of weird things happening in their city planning. Anybody that's ever driven through Houston can say it's horrible or it's this or that or whatever. It definitely is more vibrant in some way. You have like gas stations next to like houses and stuff like that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Gas stations, yeah, strip clubs next to schools. I mean, there's, okay. there's uh-huh. things you have there that are, you shake your head at and you wonder, like, how could that come to fruition? And of course, we're all there is terrible. So I don't think it's better, but I do think what we need to do is look around and say, what can we pull from these other cities that are the best of? How do they solve these problems? What's working well? And could we incorporate some of those things? And it's a great time to rethink that because the economy is shifting. Here we have everybody getting home deliveries for everything. How is all that traffic affecting the city? How is the warehousing and distribution affecting our farmland and our city? Like These are big picture problems. We should be taking a pause as a society to say, what's it going to do to my kids, right, who are in school? And so we just don't look backwards enough. We seem to think every day we've got a new problem. We don't. Some of these problems are age old. Now we're going to pause a minute for a short break. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. You kind of mentioned this e-commerce is growing and in pretty much every city, you see a lot of retail vacancies, bricks and mortar stores are not doing so well. Speaking, shifting for a second to retail space, do you think that we may see that space turned into different uses as e-commerce grows? Well, unfortunately, yes. And we've already seen that because retail is always the fastest one to pivot in any kind of economic downturn because uh, it's hard to make money at retail. You know, we saw a lot of retail chains close. I do think retailers are challenged to make their bricks and mortar stores more about the customer experience. We do need retail, though. We need retail. We need restaurants. We need hospitality spaces to contribute to the quality of life. 
I've got to bed. Everybody can just sit at home forever and not get out and socialize anymore. Although there's so many science fiction movies that tell us that's what's in our future, but let's hope not. Yes. <laughs> we need those things. That contributes to the overall placemaking of, a, of an area. And when you have that, you can have a successful, vibrant community. So it does take a mix of those things. It takes the retail, the restaurant, the mom and pop shop, takes variety, not just in experiences, but in the way things are presented to you visually. So all of those things are important. And keeping all of those things, promoting their vibrancy, promoting their economic success should be important to municipalities. I really feel for the folks who operate businesses downtown in Toronto and also in the other downtown areas, Vancouver, Montreal, where they've been hardest hit because they're not hanging on. You know, we've got empty stores, empty restaurants and all these things. When we do start to return people back to the office, they're not going to have those amenities. And so they're not going to want to be there. So it's a chicken and egg thing. We've got to provide those amenities to draw people back in. And we've got to make sure those places can stay in business. So Retail has shifted. It will continue to shift. We do need bricks and mortar retail. I mean, I'm not a big fan of big chain retail anyway, but if you already know what you're getting, you can order it online. If you want to go touch it and feel it and you don't know what you're getting, then you need to go see it. For boutiques, they need to stay in business. For Walmart, they could probably get smaller. So you think we might see some shrinkage in sort of big store retail footprints maybe? I do. I could see we could see shrinkage or the way they present their products differently. You know, where a lot of products come from the warehouse part and you just choose from, you know, a one of in the front of the store or something like that. Um, and that saves on staffing, a cost, of course. I do also think a lot of those properties are ripe for redevelopment. There's no reason you should have a single Canadian tire located anywhere. Why doesn't that Canadian tire have condos on top of it? you know, or school or something else. So that's a, that's a big footprint for real estate that's not utilized very well. And we're already seeing that. We're seeing a lot of malls with a big parking lot turn into mixed-use development. I think we'll see that on a smaller scale too. So going back to the office again, you mentioned that a lot of the survey data has shown that people want to go back. What you've said to me before that you've never been pessimistic about office buildings, that they're built into the fabric of our companies and how we work. But you did it with a caveat, which was that office buildings with cubicles spaced four feet apart, that may not be the future. So can I just ask you about your views on the office and the future of the office and when and if and how we may end up returning? Sure. Our global surveys, which include Canada, show that 80% of people want to come back to a hybrid work environment, which generally means two days in the office, three days at home, or three days in the office, two days at home, whatever. The numbers skew toward the younger folks. Younger folks want to be back in the office because that's their social system, their social outlet, right? So we know that, and that is consistent across the world, and it just makes common sense. However, now that we've all learned we can work really well from home doing our individual work, or the majority of us, there's still some people who have kids or German shepherds or whatever that don't want to be at home long term. But we can do individual work at home uh, if the space allows. When you do go to the office, the office is used in a different way. And I think that that benefits a company. I mean, for me to, to go to the office, to sit there and do individual work that I can do from the comfort of my own home when I can go, you know, change my laundry out every, every other hour. It's not really a huge benefit. We want to go to socialize, to build networks, to do some brainstorming. Maybe I want to go to learn more things. And I think because of the war for talent, when everybody is struggling to get people to come work for them, you really have to focus on 
what you want your culture to be in your company and how you want to integrate people into it. So if my office said to me, hey, Sam, when you show up, I'm going to have a latte for you. I'm going to have a great meeting room with a huge whiteboard wall or digital screen or et cetera. We're going to bring in a chef and teach you how to make a healthy lunch. And, you know, at four o'clock, you can go use the gym. Hey, fantastic. I all of a sudden now really want to go. But if you're going to go sit in the same beige cubicle that you've been in for the last 10 years, and you're not offered any sort of programming to make you feel part of the culture or any kind of building amenities or space amenities to get you excited, why bother going back? What you're describing sounds like what you know, like Google and a lot of tech companies grew famous for over the last two decades, you know, just having like free snacks and meals to keep your butt in the seat. But I feel like there's almost been a pushback against that now. But I guess I take your point. You think that we're all going to look a little bit more maybe like what the tech companies have been doing? Well, a hundred years ago, no, not actually a hundred, probably 30 years ago, 25 years ago, I worked on a lot of projects out in Silicon Valley. And I happened to meet Eric Schmidt, who was the CEO of Google. He, at the time, was the CEO of Novell, which is a a networking company. And he said to me, Sam, you have to understand the nature of a software developer. I want them to live here at my campus 24-7. I don't care if you put a sofa in their office. Give them whatever they want so they'll stay here. So that was one end of the pendulum. And then, you know, you got all those weird amenities and ping pong tables and, you know, bunk beds and stuff like that. We're not going that far. People don't want to spend all their waking hours at work anymore, especially the younger generations. We've shown they definitely want to cut off at that five o'clock mark. They value their work-life balance. But while they're there at the office, they still have those really high expectations. One of my favorite things to tell people is look at your teenagers. That's your future. So if you can look at teenagers now who are let's just say a little bit on the spoiled side, you know, they have the iPads, the computers, they've grown up in a digital society, they're used to instant access, instant gratification, gamification, all those things. That's what the future of office is going to be. Unfortunately, our teens have also grown up with now, two years of COVID essentially, where social isolation has become a defining moment in their lives. So I do expect they will become the generation that is more social. They're going to want those social outlets because they haven't had them in their formative years. So I think that you can use a little bit of a crystal ball and predict with relative certainty that if we are designing our future offices to be centers of collaboration and innovation, not just in space, but also the programming and learning and, you know, culture making, that we will draw people back to those buildings. So I don't think the office is ever going to go away if we can do it right. If we think we're going to fill up an office tower with a bunch of beige box cubicles and tell people to return, I think that's a hard stretch. Any predictions about how the return to office rolls out or any other hiccups we might see? (laughs) Well, unless you're looking at Dr. Fauci's notebook, I wouldn't know that answer. (laughs) What virus is going to come up next? I mean, we were were implementing return to work projects for companies all over Canada pre-Christmas. People were returning back to work. We were seeing uptake of 40-50%. And then, of course, Omicron, and now we're at zero again. And I think people now are really having COVID fatigue. They're like, oh, no, not again. So depending on what's going to happen with this one and the foreseeable future, you know, we've got to get the momentum back up. 
But, you know, companies can't give up. Like, you know, the worst thing we could do as a society is just give up and say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm at it. Got to keep trying. It does feel that way. I think you're totally right. Sam, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a pleasure to speak with you. Pleasure was all mine. Uh, look forward to hearing it. That was Samantha Sinella, Managing Director of Strategic Consulting in Canada for Cushman and Wakefield. A big thanks to everyone who listens to Down to Business and supports this show, which was produced by Bryce Hall, who also composed and performed the original music. The crack team at the Financial Post helped edit this, and Pamela Heaven and Victoria Wells provided web support. I'm Gabe Friedman, and I'll be back next week. But until then, you can find all your business news at financialpost.com or any of our five weekly newsletters covering energy, the economy, finance, investing, and the workplace.